Trinity Baptist Church. I was raised as a Christian and received baby baptism in the Armenian Apostolic Church, the granddaughter of a priest who was murdered in the Armenian Genocide of 1915. I was close to Jesus in my growing up years, but as tragedy and crises assailed me as an adult, I put myself rather than God at the center of my life, spiraling more and more downward and turning to addictive behavior to kill my pain. I was lost. For years, I tried to find a church where I would be helped in my desire to get back to a close, personal relationship with Christ. In 2011, I found that help at Trinity, where the Holy Spirit so gently took hold of me and brought Jesus into the center of my life. Now when crises and difficulties threaten to overwhelm me, I put myself in the Lord's hands and surrender to the Lord's will to help and strengthen me. He has and he does. And there, I'm no longer lost. And as an expression of my overflowing love, gratitude, and commitment to Jesus, I received baptism at Trinity on Easter Sunday this year. I am new. <laughs> Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent to Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you, and I said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. 
And the king kissed Absalom. The word of the Lord. All right. Thanks so much, Spring. Wow. You know, I love that we do these testimonies. You just never know who's sitting around you, and we, we get to hear a little bit of somebody's life, and it's so powerful. Uh, praise God. Uh, so thankful for what he's doing in people's lives. Uh, my name is Ross. I am an elder here, and so I'm going to be preaching this morning. Uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, Tim Tien was pe- preaching, and so I, I feel a little bit funny coming up here without either a circumcision joke or a sex analogy. Uh, you know, so uh, hopefully, hopefully you don't feel lost in the sermon without those. Uh, however, uh, you know, this sermon is sort of a follow-up to one of Tim's. He preached a sermon on sex, and this is on parenting. One sort of flows from the other, right? So, uh, so we're, not, we're not totally without sort of a, a segue here, a transition. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to parenting, there is a lot of advice out there. Uh, you know, the world is full of it. One of my favorite pieces of advice some friends gave Sandy and I once, uh, that there's really, in all of parenting, just one rule, and it goes to the kids, don't annoy the parents, right? The golden rule of parenting. Uh, that's actually not from the Lord, so I'm not going to be teaching that this morning, but uh, it is wise advice for kids, nonetheless. Uh, so uh, there are four points that I'm going to hit this morning as I, as I talk through this sermon. The first is that parenting is a form of intensive discipleship. And, you know, so for those of you that are here, you don't have kids, uh, you know, you're not a parent, you're thinking, maybe I should be checking Facebook right now. You know, there might be stuff here that is relevant to you too. So, you know, parenting is an intensive form of discipleship. I think that we all uh, should have some discipleship connection in our life. So I think there will be some good stuff here. Uh, Parents need to deal with their own childhood Parents need to live with integrity before their children, and parents need to live, leave the results up to God. Uh, who knew that so much of parenting was about the parents, right? I always thought it was about making kids obey things. Uh, but that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. So let me just say a word of prayer and invite God into what we're talking about this morning, and then we'll get rolling. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, that you are here with us. We are honored by your presence. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd fill us. Uh, I pray that you'd fill me. Spirit, I pray that you would preach. Uh, if, if, I, if I stand up here and talk, uh, it may be worth something, but, but Lord, if we hear from you, uh, that, that is worth everything. And so we thank you for this time this morning. Uh, Lord, uh, yeah, it's just awesome to be here together. We lift these things up in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, that passage that Spring read, you know, the king that was mentioned was, of course, King David. And when you think of King David, this is not a rhetorical question, so get ready. Uh, When you think of King David, what are some things that come to mind? Goliath, he killed Goliath, right? Uh, Full of faith, you know, big action, right? What else? What's that? Shepherd, right, he's known as a shepherd, shepherd's heart. We read that in the Psalms, absolutely. What else? Wow, you guys are great. So many answers. Uh, I think I heard murder, was that... Yes, yeah, yeah, right. He's had his low points, absolutely. What else? Man, man after God's own heart. Sing your song. Yeah, he wrote the Psalms. He wrote so many Psalms, right? Known as a, as a warrior, a poet, a musician. All of these things, also a murderer, right? Um, so so there, there's this... Hey, 
it's in there, right? We're not editing the Bible. All that stuff's in there. Uh, but for the many, many things that David's known for, one of the things that you just never think of him as is a parent, which is kind of funny because he had lots of kids. He had lots and lots of kids. Uh, and so, so we're going to talk about that today. And um, he, he really wasn't a great parent. That's why he's not known as one. And not to talk smack about the guy, parenting is not easy. I don't care who you are. I don't care who your kids are. It's not easy. Cindy and I have had our ups and downs. And our girls actually kind of make it easy on us. Look, my daughter's sitting in this beam of sunlight. It's almost like the Lord is saying, here's the perfect child right here in the pew. Uh, yeah, and so our girls actually kind of make it easy on us. Although there is this one incident that comes to mind that involves a tuna melt and this battle of wills about eating a tuna melt. It was a very good tuna melt. Uh, but if, if I could, <laughs> she says there's no such thing. If I had to go back in time, I may not fight that fight. Uh, so, um, as, you can, as you can see from that scripture, though, that we heard just a few minutes ago, kids really can do the darndest things, uh, like setting on fire a field of the commanding, uh, commander of the army. Uh, and, and that's really just scratching the surface with Absalom. Uh, last week, Tim talked a little bit about some of the things that he did, you know, the, uh, the whole murdering of a brother, stealing a nation from his father, trying to kill his father, right? And so... Uh, really a, a significant list of achievements for such a young man. And you look at the role that David played as a father, and you can kind of see how Absalom came to this end. Uh, now, that's not to say that David made him do it. Uh, but David didn't teach him not to do it. Right? Um, it's, it's the way that Absalom was raised up, and he didn't depart from it. And so this now brings me to the first point in this sermon, and that is that parenting is really just an intensive form of discipleship. And discipleship is how we help other people grow in Christ-likeness. It's, you know, as believers are involved in one another's lives, we help one another make that trip from who we are to who we were meant to be. Uh, neither of these things, parenting or discipleship, is done naturally. Right? This, is, this has to be done intentionally. We have to think about it. We have to learn in the process. We have to grow as our kids grow, grow as our disciples grow. Uh, there are things to learn all along the way. Throughout this sermon, I'm going to use those two terms sort of interchangeably. So if you hear me flipping back and forth, you know why. Now the word disciple uh, comes from a Greek word. Mathetes. Isn't that great? Mathetes. Uh, I was a math education major. This is a wonderful moment for me. Uh, and so you see in here the root word math. And mathetes is a word that means not just to learn about something, but to be an adherent, right? Not just to learn about it, but to learn how to do it. And so you think about learning math, right? And so here we are back in second grade or whatever, and Teacher writes up on the board, all right, class, today we're going to learn about addition. And so here we have an addition problem, 1 plus 1 equals 2. All right, is everybody good with that? All right, now that you've learned that, we're going to move on to subtraction, and in a minute, multiplication. By Thursday, we'll be doing calculus. Uh, that is absolutely not the way it goes, right? The teacher writes this down, and then out come the practice sheets. 
And for the next few years, the child is going to do thousands of addition problems, and they're going to grow in their ability to, to use this skill, right? It's not just something they learn about. It's something they learn how to do. And so, uh, you know, that's what it is with parenting. We don't want to just teach our kids rules and teach our kids what right living is. We actually want them to do it. Right? I, it, it's not so interesting to me if my kid knows my rules. It's much more interesting that they obey them. That makes me happy. Uh, and so, too, with discipleship, we do not want people to be hearers of the word only. We want them to be doers. Right? And so this is this whole Mathedes thing. This is what a disciple is, somebody who hears and does. Now, this idea of discipling kids is not new. Uh, the Lord, when he gave the law to the nation of Israel, he introduced this idea. This would be in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, and I'm just going to refer to that now. Right, The Lord's instructing the nation of Israel on what they need to do to ensure that they remain faithful to him over the course of generations. And so as he, as he talks about this, this discipleship process, he describes it as teaching others to keep commands, teaching people to obey, to, impre to impress commands on others, to talk about these commands. Don't, don't just recite them rote, but talk about them, think about them, learn about them. What does this mean? And to make memory aids. Learn how to remember what you're supposed to be doing. Right? Uh, he, he gives this great description of a discipleship process. Uh, and so you can see the Mathedes here, right? It's not just learn these commands, but it's learn how to live them out. Learn how to apply them to life. Now, in this case... The Lord is giving these instructions specifically to parents so that they can do this with their kids. This is how the nation is going to continue to be faithful to God over the course of generations. Uh, but that same process is something that you do when you're working with adults. I'm in college student ministry, and when I sit down with a college student, it's very much the same thing. Uh, you know, we talk about the scripture, we talk about the person's life, we talk about issues in their life and where scripture comes in to bear in that, and that they, they really are living out the life that Jesus called them to, that Scripture is relevant to their lives. That's the discipleship process. And so, uh, you know, whether it's, it's kids or grown-ups, whatever, discipleship, parenting, it's all kind of the same. Now, in discipleship, there are a number of different ways this can be done. The one that I just sort of obliquely referenced is one-on-one -on -one discipleship, sitting down with one other person on a consistent basis and talking to him about life, right? And so that's sort of the classic uh, discipleship thing that a lot of people hear about. But that's not the only way to go. There's group discipleship, where a small group of people gather together and they're in an environment that's a safe environment, right? That people can be vulnerable, uh, that they can talk about what's going on in their life, that they can be confronted if they need to be confronted. You know, it, you don't want to to have that happen in a place where you don't feel safe. But if you feel connected to people and you feel safe, people can talk to you about your junk, and they can say, hey, there's something I've seen in your life. We need to talk about that. And so group discipleship works that way. I think that Ephesians 4.16 uh, paints a great picture of this when Paul says, from him, Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work, right? It grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's the idea of a good, healthy, small group, is that the people in the group 
would be collectively discipling one another, helping one another to grow in Christ's likeness. Now, there are some sorts of, you know, some types of Christian group meetings that I don't think fit into the category of discipleship. For instance, New Canaan Society, right? A lot of great stuff comes out of that. A lot of guys benefit, but it's not small enough that you can have that vulnerability, that you can have that safe environment. Uh, guys get a lot of good out of it, and they grow from it, but it's really not discipleship. It's sort of a different thing. Uh, the men's Cro-Magnon retreat that happened uh, Friday and Saturday, that's what I've called it. You know, they ran out in the woods and burned things. I don't know what they did. But uh, about 19 guys went. I hear that it was awesome. Now, in and of itself, it was an event. That's not discipleship. Discipleship's a process. But uh, many of the guys that went there are part of the Tuesday night small group led by Chuck Frank. Right? Chuck's been leading that group for years. Uh, that group is, is like a discipleship group. And so the retreat may have helped to accelerate some of the work going on in guys' lives. In and of itself, it's not discipleship. God Quest, you know, when we teach the kids on Sunday mornings during the, during the school year, uh, initially we start with a group of about 40 or 50 kids, but then we break them up into four smaller groups. And so the teachers, Cindy, my wife is a teacher, and I'm, I'm a helper. I love being a helper. Um, we sit down with those kids, and we get to talk to them about what's going on in their lives. We talk about the, the meaning of the lesson we're about to go through and any doubts that they have or fears or any of that kind of stuff. And so it is a group discipleship situation. It's a great one. There are lots of other small groups that meet here at Trinity. And, you know, James, who's sitting right here, he's always happy to help connect people to, to smaller community where they can grow in their relationship with God. So if you're looking for that, you should talk to him. Uh, another specific area of discipleship is, is sort of a niche mentorship discipleship. If there's an area of your life where you want or need to experience growth, you might go looking for someone to speak into that, or there might be an opportunity. So for instance, the songwriting workshop is sort of like that. I mean, there are people that are gifted in this area and they want to grow, and so they go to that workshop. Uh, you know, with things like sexual addiction, sometimes people have this broken area in their lives and they just need help, and so they go to someone or to a group where they can be built up in this specific area. A great example of this is Heidi D'Alessandro, and I did get her permission. She was actually excited that I would share this. About a year ago, she contacted myself and Martin, and she said, look, I need help uh, living within a budget. Uh, I, I need to get out of debt. It's not happening. I'm sort of wall, you know, stuck where I am financially. And so she had, she, uh, I think, read a book on, on helping with this, and she put together a budget. Martin is a whiz at this kind of stuff. He's awesome. I'm really a cheerleader. Don't come to me to balance your checkbook. But if you want someone to say, yes, you can do it, you know, here I am. So, so Martin and I were the team that she connected with, and Martin helped her refine her budget, and then each month she sends us the results of that last month. This is what I did. This is where I got it right. This is where I blew it, right? Uh, in, the, in the past year, she has grown tremendously. She is owning her finances. And so now she's paying down debt. She's being totally responsible, living within that budget. It's absolutely amazing what this woman has done. And so if there's an area of your life where you feel like, I need some help, uh, you know, certainly pray about it, but be proactive. Like, there are people in this sanctuary that can help you grow in all kinds of areas, so maybe you need to go looking for it, and the Lord will connect you with the right person. And then the last area of discipleship I want to talk about is peer discipleship. And this, it's not exactly 
small group but sort of and this is some groups you know you meet consistently and the purpose of the group isn't bible study or mentoring but it happens anyway and so the elders when we meet uh, this happens we have uh, the authority in fact the responsibility to speak into one another's lives sometimes that happens in really powerful ways sometimes in really irritating ways uh, big ways small you know there was a point where the elders looked at me and said hey look you just don't speak up enough in these meetings and I was like well I'm an internal processor and I like to do a lot of listening and put it all together and and know what I think before I speak and they're like well you know that's kind of too bad we actually yeah we need to hear from you more often we need to know what you're thinking whether it's a completed thought or not this is really uncomfortable for me but too bad for me you know my role in, a, in that group is for my voice to be part of the decision-making process so do I have to push myself sometimes and do something that's uncomfortable yeah I do but it's good and so uh, you know sometimes there's this this um, peer discipleship that goes on in a group that isn't exactly a discipleship group but it happens anyway and, and as always you know Tim mentioned this last week I'll mention it again there are three people that can help you connect with uh, opportunities to disciple as I mentioned James is one of them Cindy Polika uh, in working with the kids what a great place to work in helping people grow in Christ likeness and then the youth Francisco Ruiz who's gonna do that crazy art thing after church go Francisco um, you know he also has great opportunities for people to speak into the lives of youth. So those are some of the people you can go to to make this happen. Now, this is a parenting sermon, right? So let me get on with the parenting part. And to do that, I want to take a look at David before he was a dad. All right, I want to, I want to see what it was like for him as a kid, because that's an important thing. And so the first place that David is mentioned in Scripture is in 1 Samuel 16. And Samuel, the prophet, has been sent to Bethlehem. He's been sent by God. And God said, look, Saul is going to be history. I'm going to bring in a new king. I want you to go to Bethlehem. There's this guy, Jesse. He's got a small herd of sons. One of them is going to become the king. I want you to go anoint this guy. So Samuel rolls up into Bethlehem. The people are deathly afraid because Samuel is one of these people that can call fire down from the sky. And so they come to him and they say, you come in peace and he says yes in peace I've come to sacrifice to the Lord consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me it's a barbecue awesome the people are happy then he he goes to Jesse and he consecrates Jesse and his sons and invites them to the sacrifice now if the prophet of God came and said I'm gonna select one of your sons to be king would you please have them come to this cookout what would you do round up all of your sons and you'd bring them, right? So we read on a little bit later in 1 Samuel 16. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all of your sons? Jesse answered, they're still the youngest. He's tending sheep. Now, how is it that Samuel tells Jesse, I'm going to anoint one of your sons king, and yet this one kid is out left in a field doing the work of a hired hand? It sounds a little like Cinderella, right? 
uh, when she was actually the one that should have been going to the ball, but she's off scrubbing floors. And so David is in the same position. And it's even more curious to me, when you read in that same chapter, the way other people describe David. In verse 18 of 1 Samuel 16, he's described as a brave man and a warrior speaks well and is fine looking. The Lord is with him. All right, David's reputation among other people was actually really, really good. And yet within his own family, when it comes time for the brothers to get together, David is left out in the field tending sheep. I don't know why Jesse would count his youngest son as being uh, not, not worth joining the crowd of the other people in the family. And yet, here he is, left on the outside. Uh, you know, you contrast that with Joseph, and James preached about this a few weeks ago, who was obviously the favorite in his family, and he has this air of superiority that leads everyone to despise him and to no good end. Uh, in any family, if, if the kids don't all have a sense of being equally loved and valued, uh, the, the result is never good, right? And so for myself, the way that plays out, uh, a few years ago when my father was passing away, uh, for the first time in years, the six of his children were together at one time. And at one point, as we're standing around talking, my five siblings uh, have the audacity to all affirm that I was my dad's favorite, which I kind of sort of knew. But, to, you know, it was obvious. But to have all your siblings say it, you're forced to say, well, yeah, I guess maybe so. And so, um, you know, there's certainly some perks that came along with that. But when I was in high school, I was getting away with things that my siblings would have never gotten away with. And in fact, I became really good at getting away with things. And when you get away with things, you just want to get away with more things. And so I actually became very good at being sneaky. Now, uh, if you're not following Jesus, then this might be a useful skill. But at the tender age of 27, when I started following Christ, uh, this was actually not a good skill to have. This was actually a debilitating skill to have. And so in my life, I have to be careful to include other people and to make sure that I'm, I'm being open in my life to make sure that they have permission to ask me about stuff because I don't want to be the guy that's good at getting away with things. That's not going to give me a better marriage. It's not going to make me a better dad. It's not going to help me be a better elder or serve better in the ministry I serve in. Uh, at the age of 52, I have to admit, I would be a much better man now if I had not been a favorite then, which is part of the reality of my life. David would have been a much better father to his children if he had not been neglected when he was a kid. Uh, but that's sort of the way that he was brought up, and he did not depart from that. This brings us to our third point, that parents or disciples need to live with integrity before their children or before their disciples. Now, you know, David, this forgotten son, eventually, is he's on this process of becoming king. It was a long process. It wasn't easy. It took years. But he's getting closer and closer to being the king, the king of Israel. A side note about kings at this time, for kings in general, in order to show how truly kingly they were, they would collect stuff. They might collect horses and chariots. They might collect soldiers with really great armor, 
right? That showed how powerful you were. They might collect gold. They might collect silver. They might collect women, right? It was not at all unusual for these kings to have, uh, you know, what we might call a harem, a collection of wives and concubines. Uh, this could number into the dozens or hundreds, depending on the king and where they were. Now, the Lord, when, when he was giving the law to the nation of Israel, he foretold them, look, he said, I am your king, the Lord Almighty, I'm your king. But one of these days, you guys are going to get tired of that, and you're going to want a human king. That's a mistake. But you're going to do it, so here are a few parameters that this king needs to live within so that you all can live happy lives. One of them, in Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, one of these parameters was this. He, the king, must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. Don't take a lot of wives, or your heart will be led astray. If you set your heart on collecting people strictly for your pleasure, how is that not going to poison your heart in some way? And so, you know, here's David, uh, man after God's own heart, and yet the way he lives this out is sort of hot and cold, right? His heart was torn. So as David's position as king is growing more and more certain, again in Samuel, 2 Samuel 3, the scripture says that sons were born to David while he was living in Hebron. Six sons were born to David to six different wives. He's not king yet, and already he's starting his collection. A couple chapters later, 2 Samuel 5, verse 13, the scripture tells us that after David left Hebron, once he became king in Jerusalem and he was, he was there enthroned, he took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and sons and daughters were born to him. And so here he is, this Jewish king, uh, doing exactly what the Lord had told him not to do. You do not, you do not start a collection of women. This is unwise. It's not right. Uh, and yet he does this anyway. Disciplers need to play by the rules that they expect others to live by. Right? You cannot lead where you will not go. If you're not willing to live by these rules, uh, who's going to listen to you? So here's David compromising in an area that guarantees his heart's going to be divided. He loved the Lord, but he was just inconsistent in living it out. Kids that live in a home where an authentic faith is lived out are much more likely to follow that faith when they become adults. If they see hypocrisy, they just don't buy it. And so uh, certainly we have to play by the same kingdom rules that our kids play by. Uh, now, we can't live perfect lives, right? I don't live a perfect life. Uh, my kids know that I'm a sinner. They can tell you just how much of a fool I've been at different points in my life. Isn't that great? Um, but sometimes it becomes much more personal than that. So, Karen, would you come up here for a second? Um, I know. I'm actually going to bring a child. This, yeah, you can grab that mic. This was James' idea. So, 10 or 12 years from now, I'm going to suggest this for him. It'll be awesome. <clears throat> I'm just going to... File it away in the back of my mind. All right, so uh, is that on? Uh, yeah. I am continuing to talk. Oh, there we go. Boom, perfect. All right, so, Karen, can you ever think of a time when I've had to ask for your forgiveness? Well, yeah, the first time I remember asking would be about 10 years ago. I was five or six, and I was jump roping in our living room. It was great. I was having a lot of fun. But then I knocked over one of our lamps. 
All right. And so do you remember what that was like for me to ask for your forgiveness? Uh, I, I mean, I mean, it was a good thing because, you know, it's good to know that, you know, that I then can ask for your forgiveness and not that we have to be perfect people who can say forgiveness. Oh, wow. All right. All right. Awesome. Thank you very much. What do you know? So a bad parenting moment turned into a good parenting moment. Yeah, and I, I did, I mean, I actually kind of remember this too. It's one of those moments that you just, it sticks in your mind. I kind of, and then, you know, you see this little, her eyes go, oh, no, Cindy's like, you, what are you doing? You're scaring our child. It was awesome. Beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, yeah, you know, as parents, we're bound to sin against our kids once in a while. It's bound to happen. We have to be willing and able to get down to them eyeball to eyeball uh, and, and ask for their forgiveness. To say, you know, I just sinned against you. This is what I did, and I shouldn't have done it. I'm so sorry. Uh, we have to be able to play by the same rules that we expect them to play by. Now, as David's children grew into adulthood, they had no sense of consequences for their sin. Uh, their father did not pay the full price for his sin when he... right committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. Uh, you know, the Lord did take the baby that they conceived together. Uh, but the law, right, the, according to the law, the penalty for adultery is death. According to the law, the penalty for murder is death. And so his kids grow up in a household where the law doesn't seem to apply to him. And additionally, he never applied it to them. And so there's all of this madness going on in his household, which, granted, when you, when you read about this in the scripture, David's household, because of all of his wives and kids, consisted of a bunch of different houses. All right, so this is one of the problems you run into <laughs> when you decide to marry, you know, 20 wives and have kids. Um, so Amnon, his very first son, rapes Tamar, one of his daughters. Uh, nothing, nothing happens for a couple of years. David doesn't do anything about it. So eventually, Absalom, Tamar's brother, murders Amnon. After the murder, David doesn't do anything. Eventually, Absalom self-exiles himself to another, uh, to another kingdom. Again, silence from David. Then eventually, the thing that we heard about at the beginning with burning the field and David saying to Joab, look, buddy, I, I asked you to get me to see my dad. You didn't do it. So this is, this is what's happened. Can you go asked my dad to call me in. And so, uh, and so Joab does it. And, you know, it's funny, Absalom says, I want to see his face even if he kills me. Right? David's saying this, knowing David's not going to kill him. David's not going to do anything about it because that is how David parents. Right? He, as a kid, he was left on the outside. Uh, really, his father wasn't interested in having him involved in the family. David is a father. Uh, he's just not involved in his kids' lives. They're, they're doing all kinds of stuff, and the law just doesn't apply to them. And so he goes in, and it's that very tender moment at the end of that scene where David um, kisses him, but 
but what? I mean, things only get worse from there. It's not as if it was actually reconciliation. It's a very sad moment, actually. Uh, when kids are allowed to grow up without boundaries, it actually leaves them feeling unloved. Studies have shown that kids, when they have boundaries, when they have limits within the home, it helps them to feel secure and it helps them to feel loved. And so, uh, you know, David's kid growing up, kids growing up without boundaries and a sense of accountability, uh, the results were disastrous. Uh, just about anything that could go wrong did. Now, I do want to mention there is the other side of poor parenting, right? The super authoritative, unreasonably high expectation, micromanaging parent. Uh, I don't know if there are any of those in Manhattan. I don't know if anyone's seen one. <laughs> yeah, of course, they're all over. Uh, but, uh, but this also is poor parenting. Uh, Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, you know, to be unreasonably authoritative, to set those kinds of expectations, uh, you put a kid in a position where they just can't ever be perfect enough. They just can't ever please you enough. And it leaves them feeling disheartened. You know, how are they, how are they ever going to do what they need to do? And so, um, you know, you don't want to bring up a kid in that kind of environment, nor do you want it to be a totally free environment where there are no parameters. We all need to live in an environment of grace and truth. And that applies to raising kids as well as to raising disciples. We need grace and truth in our lives to give us, you know, the truth for the parameters and the grace to fail. We need those things. The Lord wants us to be encouragers of our children and to teach them how to live within boundaries. And the body of Christ is actually a great place to do this. You know, the Changs for a couple of years have um, run this once a month Sunday morning parenting group. And we sit down and we listen to some content and then we discuss. And it has been such a great place to go to hear from other parents. If you feel like, oh no, my home is such a mess, I'm such a crazy parent, and then you go and you talk about your crazy house and five other parents look at you and say, oh yeah, that's me too. You know, what you're experiencing is actually not abnormal. It really, really helps to know that you're not the craziest parent on the planet. And then there are other people there who can talk to you and say, well, yeah, you know, when my kid was that age, they did that too, and this is how I dealt with it. And you get to learn from the successes and failures of other parents. And so, you know, connecting with a place like, you know, the, that place the Chings have created, um, it can be super helpful. If you're a parent and you feel like, I'm alone in this, uh, don't, man, don't be alone. You know, connect with other parents and get the encouragement and uh, sometimes the advice that you need. You don't want to smother people with advice because it leaves them feeling like, what, I'm such a mess that all I need is advice? Um, encouragement is good, too. So definitely connect with people. We don't want to neglect or overcorrect our kids, but we do need to live authentic Christian lives in front of our disciples. Now, this brings us to our fourth point, and this one's shorter, just so you are getting antsy. I am, too. Uh, and so um, the fourth point is the parents need to leave the results up to God. Uh, you know, you see in David's case, all of this madness after that section of Spring Red, um, eventually Absalom is killed. And David is absolutely crushed by this. His heart is broken. And he's, he's lamenting, he's mourning. But as he mourns for Absalom, he does not blame himself. 
He doesn't blame himself. And you know what? He couldn't. Absalom created the situation that led to his death. David was a bad parent, but Absalom decided to do things that made a bad situation much, much worse. Uh, you can't own other people's decisions. And you need to remember that even the best parent or discipler can't control the outcome of the process. You can give a child terrific nurturing, you can give them terrific counsel, you can do all the right things, and sometimes it just doesn't turn out the way that you hoped it would. You can't own that. As the, as the person becomes responsible for themselves, that person then becomes responsible for the things that they do. They might do things that make you sad, you might mourn what they're doing, um, but you're not responsible for it. Now, that doesn't mean that the parenting process isn't important, it's, it's very important to do the right things, right, as much as you can. Um, it just doesn't guarantee results. It gives, it gives our kids a better chance of living well, but it doesn't guarantee results. Of course, if they turn out really good, we can take credit for that. No, we can't. That was a joke. All right, so uh, four points. Parenting is an intensive form of discipleship. Be intentional in helping others grow to be the people they were created to be, and you can do this one-on-one, -on -one, group, here, uh, all sorts of ways to do it. Uh, parents need to deal with their own childhood. On this one, this is actually an action point, right? This is a Mathides moment. How do you apply any of this stuff? Uh, Pete Scazzaro wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and I think it's the second or third chapter in there. He talks about looking back at the family you grew up in and thinking about what went on there and the dynamics. Um, man, if you've never read through that, get your hands on a copy of that book and look at that. That'd be awesome. Look back and see where our parents got it right and where they got it wrong. Parents need to live with integrity before their children. Sometimes we have to ask for forgiveness. And just because we're in a position, we're in the position of the parent or discipler, it doesn't mean that our sin doesn't count. It actually means that the value of our counsel is at stake. Right? You have to live an authentic life, or what you teach isn't worth much. And finally, parents need to leave the results in the hands of God. Uh, we can be diligent to follow a good parenting process, but we cannot guarantee the outcome. Is there something you need to stop apologizing for? All right, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you, man, I thank you that, uh, that you, that you pour your grace out on us. In our lives, there are so many things that we have to do, we need to do, we're responsible for, and we're imperfect. Uh, Lord, we need your grace. I pray, Lord, that you'd, you'd continue to speak your grace into our lives. Holy Spirit, continue to show us areas of our lives that we need to open up to you. Help us to understand the families we come from. Help us to understand the families we're creating. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you are with us in this, that you don't leave us alone. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your awesome name. Amen.